You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 26 of Arsenal Pass. I'm Brendan Patrick, joined always by calling champion Hayden Dale. Hayden, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. What's happening, Brendan? Nothing much. Doing well, doing well. So today we'll be, we'll be discussing drafts. We're going to be diving deep on the basics of how it works, key things you should be doing during your drafts, drafting your seat, reading signals, as well as talking about our personal tips when it comes to Tales of Aria draft. But first, let's talk about your week in Flesh and Blood. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, we can flesh and blood has been good, Brennan. Um, class constructed testing, really, actually, really enjoying this format. Um, you know, it feels really open. There's a lot of heroes that, uh, you know, basically every hero feels viable to some extent. I mean, obviously, it's early days of testing, so I'm um, also just learning about what's what's uh, what's happening with how the heroes are currently shaking out. Obviously, with Tales of Aria as well, what that kind of means for things. But yeah, no, been enjoying playing a bunch of different decks, a bunch of different decks that I've been sort of working on as well that um, feel like they have legs, which is, yeah, it's, it's always fun. And then outside of that, I uh, did a draft on Saturday, our weekly our weekly draft with um, some other players that we have online, uh, which was, yeah, it was, it was good. Uh, I mean, I went 0-3, so it was, you know, not that good, but um, definitely learned a lot from my drafts. I tried a different, tried a different bit of a different strategy in our draft this week and uh, definitely did not pay off. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny that we announced we announced Hayden's O three as an issue. We're about to teach everybody about said draft. Yeah, it is because it, but there's also a lot of learnings from that. I think it's really interesting. Like, um, actually, I learned more from my O three draft than I did from my three O draft the week prior. So, um, yeah, I'm actually excited to talk about draft because this format is really deep. First of all, uh, but also a lot of fun and very very interesting. Yeah, for sure. So I've also been enjoying Classic Constructed. We've kind of, you know, finally switched over to at least like a half and half um, for our North American players in our group. Um, we'll do kind of half sealed, half limited stuff, and then swap over to Classic Constructed. And that's been, it's funny because it's the first, you know, in Monarch, Classic Constructed definitely felt more like my job, like the thing that I kind of had to do, you know, it was like, it was definitely the work. Um, but now... I think that class construction really feels like a kind of an escape from limited. Not that limited is bad or anything, but just that the format is so open. There's so many different things, and everybody's trying on you know, different decks, different strategies. So it's very, very fun, and I've been enjoying it a lot. So yeah, yeah I mean, I was also a part of said draft recently. Um, I think I went one two, but also <laughs> was trying just funky, uh, some funky strategies, trying to. Main thing is trying to find archetypes, right? Trying to identify cards and um, archetypes and classes that are going to be underdrafted yeah. uh, to try to shore up the consistency when we get to something like nationals. We should, so. we should re-record the intro uh, and let everyone know that we're now talking draft today with 1, 2, and zero three drafters, uh, Brendan and Hayden. <laughs> well, I mean, the weekend prior, I definitely I went, you know, 48,000 and O, so it's okay. <laughs> Just kidding. Just pulling out some lies like Hayden over here and trying to shore up my record, but no, it's um. Wait, what? You, know, you learn a lot. You learn a lot from your losses, and I definitely was yeah. drafting intentionally towards uh, a certain strategy, more experimentally than trying to spike our you know, our little event. Yeah, and actually, um, obviously, a table full of very good players that we have in these drafts, but also um, some really interesting things that we're going to talk about later on to do with uh, you know basics of draft, like core fundamentals that sometimes feel like. You should move away from some core fundamentals to try and push different things in draft and 
Um, actually, we have some good examples from from our drafts in the past couple of weeks. So yeah, we're going to talk about that further down. But Brendan, why don't we jump into the news? Yep. So <laughs> kind of the top of our news here. Big milestone for us. We have hit 2,000 subscribers on YouTube. Um, just awesome to kind of see the growth. I remember not too long ago, we were at 1,000 and I became a blonde man. You know, I was actually thinking today that I feel like we finally made it when my hair color becomes a marketing expense for, for Arsenal Pass. So <laughs> that's really the goal. And I'm hoping Hayden will join me on said, you know, billing said expense soon enough when he does get out of lockdown. But yeah, it's it's incredible to kind of be at 2,000 now. Um, and it's just been an awesome journey. Like, well, if we think back to where we were when we started this, and just how small we were thinking back then to where we are now and kind of what we're planning for the future. Um, it's just been an incredible journey. Yep. Lots of exciting stuff on the horizon. Um, obviously, from the, the YouTube side, we're ramping up with like gameplay videos, dick ticks. Uh, we did a draft walkthrough this week as well. Um, don't want to steal your thunder, Brennan. Usually, Brennan plugs the uh, the videos we do. But yeah, no, it's been it's been a good few weeks. And I actually just thought the other day, I've been in lockdown for the majority of, uh, of our time doing Arsenal Pass, which is, is weird because... Uh, First of all, you know, we've obviously gone through a bit of a longer lockdown, but also it's, uh, you know, it's been four or five months. So it's, um, has been, yeah, it's been an awesome experience so far. So again, just thank you to, to everyone out there and to all of our, all of our awesome Arsenal Pass listeners. Yeah. That's when you're supposed to say, oh, just lockdown, just, I wouldn't have been able to do it without you, Brendan. Let's go, you know. I oh, that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that I want to talk about as well so national championship invites are going out so um we already had the road to nationals invites go out so if you did win or place in a road to nationals make sure you check your emails uh, because alice's have sent those out to the winners and uh, place getters and road to nationals for your invites and you do need to go and accept the invite in order to make sure you get it so make sure you uh, yeah go and get that done uh but also 90 day xp so they have now released the list of 90 day xp invita- uh, invitation getters to uh, to nationals sorry i almost said road to nationals to nationals so you can go and check that out if you're on the list um yeah exciting times you know it, everyone who had been sort of like grinding a bit playing locals playing you know as many road to nationals as possible to get that xp if you know they weren't able to make those top fours uh you know i'm sure you have probably made it and congratulations to you that have your invite to nationals it's only, it's only a few weeks before nationals start kicking off uh, i think three weeks before our first nationals which is Probably, I think there's a European Nationals uh, that kicks us off. Might be Germany or the UK is very early on as well. So, yeah, exciting times. Um, so I know that I well, not that I know, but I'm actually asking you now. So New Zealand and Australian Nationals those were pushed back, right? Yeah. So uh, New Zealand Nationals is officially postponed. That was meant to be the first. I think the first weekend of Nationals, so the end of this month. Uh, New Zealand are in a you know like a semi lockdown state in some cities. So. Uh, although it looks like they're coming out of those, I don't think it's going to be in time for them to run their nationals in the planned weekend. So it looks like they're being pushed back to, at this stage, looks like in sometime in November. <clears throat> so interestingly, I guess the event that, you know, many of the players around the world would have probably looked to as the first event to sort of, you know, a bit of a test for the metagame where things might start to shake out. Now that ends up being a little bit later and it looks like some European nationals will be the first that we get. And then, of course, US nationals and... Um, in early November, right, Brennan? Second weekend of November is U.S. Nationals. Yeah, it is crazy to think. Uh, it's going to be a big event. I mean, obviously Vegas was was huge, but Nationals and all that that brings, you know, a, yeah. a, an event at that scale, so, you know, as premier as it is, it's going to be incredible and I think really sets us up to kick off the Pro Tour in 2022. Yeah, super exciting. Um, and then, yeah, from the Australian side, from my side over here, yeah, we looks like 
uh, and, and actually really excitingly, LSS have been committed to running the national champs. We missed out uh, last time as well in, in 2020, uh, just through to due to uh, like some states within the country being locked down. Um, you know, just ongoing, you know, ongoing, right? But um, it's going to be looking like we get nationals probably in January at this stage. Uh, so, we, you know, we will have nationals over here, which is exciting. Just won't be for for a little bit. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll take whatever we can get. Other topics on the news this week. So there's some really cool articles up on Fab TCG around drafting. So obviously we're talking about limited today, uh, but you can also go and check out some Fab TCG articles written by the developers around the archetypes of the you know current heroes in Tales of Aria limited. So you've got you know Jason wrote one, Jason Chung, one of the the lead developer wrote one on Briar, which is really cool. So um, yeah, I recommend going and checking those out if you're looking for a bit of an idea of like archetypes, you know, key cards, things like that. Um, we're going to talk more fundamentals today. So I think those are really great sort of, I guess, uh, pieces that, you know, after you listen to this, you can probably go and check those out and, and gain some some really good information. A pretty exciting, I guess, piece of, of news is that uh, Star City Games, who we already know have been, you know, jumping on Flesh and Blood. They've been selling Flesh and Blood since uh, Monarch, but are now jumping on with events. So SCG, they're now running their first event. I think in basically two years, uh, they have their SCG Con, which is like their big sort of marquee event coming up. And Flesh and Blood is going to be there. So that's super exciting. Not only is it uh, this time a magic event, but it is also a Flesh and Blood event. They have events running all weekend long. So if you are in the Virginia, Virginia area in the US or, you know, you just want to go and check it out if you're in the US, I couldn't recommend more going in and checking it out. They've got, you know, drafts. They've got some, um, they've got a PTI as well, a ProQuest. Um, so that's going to be the first ProQuest outside of a, of a calling, I believe, which is, um, yeah, well, in North America, anyway, so, which is super exciting. Yeah. And on that note, this week's time in the round features SEG writer and broadcast and broadcaster Brian Gottlieb, um, who recently, you know, dived headfirst into Flesh and Blood and talks to us about his journey and why he truly loves the game as a veteran TCG player. It's a really interesting conversation. I check it out. Yeah, um, I, that's something you're interested in. Ton, tons of fun recording that one. Um, Brian is someone who, you know, coming from a, a magic background, I've listened to for a long time with his podcasts um, and his, you know, his work on like the SCG tour and uh, and his writing. So it was, yeah, it was great to have him on and really, really interesting to see just how into flesh and blood he is getting uh, because he definitely is. <laughs> And what would be the news without a shout out to, you know, the people that make this all possible, you know, our almost 200 patrons so far. Um, it's just been amazing to see the support and it keeps growing and growing every day, which is very, very encouraging. If you are interested, we do host a lot of exclusive content on our Patreon. We have extra podcasts every month. We do live sessions. In addition to that, we're, you know, it's kind of a podcast where the patrons are able to participate, ask questions, all that good stuff. And as well, when we throw up deck techs on Arsenal Pass, we have you know additional content on the Patreon, such as you know the written out sideboard guide, deck theory, overall strategies as well. And then we go into kind of the math on the ratios of the deck, whether that's you know the resource base, the non-tech actions versus tech actions, pretty much everything you need to kind of pick up the deck and start being competitive. And then past that, we had um, we had our sealed deck video go up on the YouTube channel. So if you're, you know, if you're prepping for a calling or any kind of big event coming up that's sealed, I recommend checking it out. Just run through the cards and, you know, it's talk about some stuff that you know, maybe is a little bit, a uh, little bit off people's radars. So I think you could pick up some value. And then we also had a, um, a Viscerai versus Dash gameplay go up, which I was actually very, very happy with how it turned out. Um, the Viscerai list is very, very cool, very spicy. And I think a potential, co- uh, you know, contender as we head into the national seasons here. Yeah, it's also super fun to play. Uh, it's been the sort of the, one of the first decks that I built up 
uh, post Telsvaria and it's the deck that I'm probably still having the most fun playing. Um, so yeah, recommend it both as a pretty strong list, but also just a ton of fun. And you know, who doesn't love Viscera? Mm-hmm. Speaking of gameplay, um, yeah, go ahead and shoot us, you know, shoot us a comment in the YouTube video here um, or anywhere else of what what kind of heroes you would like to see us play. You know, obviously we are prioritizing you know newer heroes, but sometimes we're just jumping on some of the heroes that got a lot of tools or maybe they're going to be performing well since the meta opened up after the Seeds of Agony banning. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you've got something in mind you really want to see, whether it's Ice Lexi, Earth Briar, or maybe, you know, that that infamous Olten deck, let us know. We'll see if we can get it up. Yep, and, and Brendan isn't afraid to play Azalea, so if you do want to see Brendan on Azalea with Seek and Destroy, let us know. <laughs> anyway, let's head into the Commander Cookout section, Hayden. Yeah, let's do it. So we're back again, two weeks in a row, Commander Cookout section as well, and truly, you know, back in the uh, back in the zeitgeist of, of everyone's xenomines. You know, so um, we, uh, we actually have a great question this week. So we have a question from um, John Franey, who is uh, a lot, another long-time listener. Um, and John's question is, is, actually, I'm just going to read his, uh, his email. It says, hey, guys, love the pod and everything you put on YouTube. I'm curious as to what your thoughts have been about Briar. Both in Classic and Blitz constructive formats, it seems early to pass judgment, but in my brief testing, she's already pretty oppressive. There are so many generic and runeblade non-attack actions you can jam in the deck with Go Again for free. Each turn can be superior, uh, super explosive with, a real down, with no real downside. Have we found this to be true? Uh, has has my testing been lacking? John asks. I have found hand disruption like an old time to be somewhat effective at shutting her down, but not consistently, which leads to my second question. Is Runeblade at its fundamental design space bad for the game? Perhaps too much of a hot take, <laughs> but I'll let you tackle it if you want. Don't worry, John. Uh, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not, we won't shy away from hot takes. Um, again, thanks so much for Arsenal Pass and putting out all the content you do for the community. It's such, it's very much appreciated. Thank you for your question, John. And um, you know what? I think this is actually I wanted to discuss Runeblade because obviously we've had um, now Brendan right. We've had three Runeblades in Class Constructor. We've also had Viscera first mm-hmm. and Chain and now Briar. So obviously Runeblade is a is a marquee class of of this game, right? I think I've said it before, and I think it's pretty obvious at this point just to, to how much a degree that is true. Um, you know, it's a, a design space that is super interesting. It's a, a you know, a class that LSS have said is a big part of uh, the Wraith world. Um, so, you know, whether that be from, from Aria, from the Demonastery, you know, there is lots of, uh, lots of Runeblades running around in different shapes and forms. But great question. First of all, let's talk about just Briar in general and in, in this new format. What are your sort of first impressions, Brendan, on Briar in this class constructor format? It's funny because I think that, like, from what I actually see on, like, Twitter is that a lot of people think that Briar is, like, not very good. Um, and it was actually even before we had time to test it, I remember in kind of the early phase, people people were definitely writing the character off. Um, in terms of what I've seen, yeah, it's really, really powerful. <laughs> I think both builds, actually, both Earth and Lightning have shown to be very powerful in our group. Um, but so far, we've actually been able to find decks that are just straight-up Kryptonite for it. That it's lost very consistently too, especially the lightning side of it. Um, still, you know, still in early days there. But while it seems to be, for me, it's probably the most attractive deck um, out of the Tales of Aria heroes. Like it's looking really good. I mean, Runeblade just classically attacking off the two axes of, you know, physical damage and arcane. It's just a good place to be a lot of the time. But with Briar specifically, it seems like the kind of damage output you can have. Um, with this somewhat linear game plan is very, very big. Um, so I'm, I'm liking it in the early meta right now, but will it be kind of flexible enough and resilient enough? Like I think that's an important question is resilience um, 
to maintain a dominance or kind of you know, uh, let's say a foothold in the meta as we move forward mm-hmm. yeah it's really interesting i think like the early sort of days of this new meta one of the things that we really see and this is the same in, in every meta at the start is that uh i think decks with linear plans tend to do better earlier on you know we see people it's just it's much easier to adopt a plan to play it into games and um if you're not i guess you're obviously always adapting as the game goes on you're adapting to turn cycles into situations but if you're not actually uh you know physically and very much so changing the game plan depending on matchup to matchup um i think we see less of that early on because it's it's more difficult to do uh, and it's not it's not clear that you should do that into certain matchups because you know probably haven't played against that deck multiple times don't know what the sort of core lists are going to look like from different heroes so Briar on the lightning and, and um, earth side has some some really cool things that it can do that's that is a bit more linear in game plan but it's also just you know quite explosive as well um which is you know no matter what uh, hero is playing into which is really cool and i think that is a bit of a tenant of the rune blades which we will talk a bit more about rune blade in a second just as a class but i think we will see that sort of shift and to, to Brent's point you know um there is you know there's things that briar doesn't do well in this format already doesn't block very well um you know you could say embodiment of earth is like a, a good way to defend but if we're talking about the lightning decks uh you know if you're playing ball lightnings things like this um and if you're able to stop the embodiment of earths often they're not going to be able to defend well in the second cycle oh sorry on the next turn cycle uh which is important good way to attack it so there's definitely ways to attack these decks um it's just being conscious of like what their weaknesses are i think running other linear game plans into you know briar which in probably early days has you know as we said very linear game plans might not be the way to do it right so it might be ways that you need to attack it a bit differently and I, but i think that's the same for so many of the the classes in this game especially like we say week one week two week three where um the game plans are going to be just pretty explosive pretty uh, i guess adapted to just trying to present big damage uh and you know try and push through those sort of early game um turns so yeah i think it's it's an interesting one with briar i think it's it's a lot better than people gave it credit for initially when the when the hero was released um to to what extent it becomes you know as a hero in this in this format and then you meet it we'll have to see what now about the real question yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'll let you lead brendan so i guess you know we just i did preface a little bit about what runeblade means to lss and, and at least that's it's a big part of that is my interpretation but also just the things that lss have said as well so it's not just you know it's not just i'm not just making it up or just uh rambling this is definitely things i've said about the design space of the game that runeblade is one of their sort of i guess uh, key pillars of that yeah so to answer this question i feel like the the context of this question is kind of chain based right like we saw we never really saw like a viscerai dominance, but we did see a chain dominance. And I think that chain, like chain's issues weren't rune blade based. They were more like pseudo dredge based, right? Like using this kind of zone to have massive card advantage. And if you employed the correct strategy to have inevitability versus control and fatigue um, or just game plans that weren't proactive. And that deck, I don't think it was a rune blade problem. And I think I've talked about this for like a long time regarding chain and the issues that i had with the class and i don't i would go even i would go even farther to say that not only was it not a rune blade problem but it was also not a shadow rune blade problem it was literally just a chain problem and the hero ability uh which is why i thought living legend would kind of solve the problem but it looks like we gotta we gotta fix a little bit faster so the class in general i don't think is is like a fundamental kind of design issue um it is interesting in the way that it does kind of hyper it has like a hyper hyper efficient way of utilizing both axes, which makes it hard to block against 
Um, but it does suffer a lot of downsides for being able to do something like that. So my short answer is like, no, I don't think that it, you know, the class in general, like the, the generic class rune blade is a problem for the game. Um, but so far the rune blades we have, we were presented with one rune blade that was <laughs> very, very good. And then the others, um, you know, we'll kind of see where they land. Yep. I um, agree with that. My answer would be yes and no. <laughs> so I think that uh, the design space of Runeblade is really cool. I think it's such a good thing for the game to have the utilization of the two sort of, you know, um, two of the key pieces of, of the world of Wraith with, you know, physical combat damage and then arcane damage and for that to be entwined and um, to be done. And I think, you know, for all three of the Runeblades, they actually feel different, which is, which is really cool, which is hard to do from a design space um, and design element. In saying that, though, I think it's something that they need to be really careful of because of the the dual system of damage, right? And I think, you know, we can go back and forth. And to be honest, Brendan, I'm kind of just sick of talking about chain. <laughs> mm. But, you know, you could say probably they got it wrong, right? So they do need to be careful about how they balance Runeblade's, uh, Runeblade heroes and the class of Runeblade, especially as they release more Runeblade class, uh, Runeblade class cards into the environment where previous Runeblades can pick up and play those uh, class cards. But in saying yeah. that, I still do think it's, you know, I think that it's not, um, it's not bad for the, the game. I don't think it's a bad design space for the game, to John's question. I think it's one that needs to be managed. And if it's done correctly, it's not only really, really cool, can be really fun, um, but it's just really unique. So, yeah, I think that's kind of my answer to that question. I actually really like it, though. I think the game would feel like it was kind of missing something without it. Because, like, I, I yeah. love, I love the idea of Kano, but having, like, a, like a middle ground, right? Um, it's really cool, mm-hmm. for, especially from a casual standpoint. I, I love it. If it, but even from a competitive, so far I've enjoyed it. But you know, um, yeah, I guess kind of my final answer is like I do generally think it's it's good for the game. Yeah, it it changes the the way that the game needs to be played, and that's that's a good thing, right? It it, it actually takes away from. Although I said that you know we look at Briar and maybe early in the format it feels quite linear with its plan. The actual the, the, the damage isn't linear, right? So the way that decks probably end up needing to play into that, I don't think that can be... It actually forces, you know, interaction and for people to play differently because you're having two point damage on two axes, right? So there's decisions to be made about how you cover that damage, about which damage is important to you, um, and different decks can focus on different sources of damage, even within the Runeblade sort of family. So, you know, I think this is like a, a really important part of the game and I'm glad we have it. It just needs to be, you know, it just comes down to how that uh, be, gets worked into and from a design space aspect. Um, but I think Briar is actually is, is a pretty cool way to do that with the with the dual elements and um, the ways that you can build build the hero differently. And then, of course, you know, Viserai. I'm a big Viserai fan. I think there's, there's still something there with Viserai and is also just really fun to play. Awesome. Well, why don't you take us into the main topic of the pod, Aiden? Yeah, let's do it. Just wanted to say, if you do want to get your questions in for the Commander Cookout, please do. Flick them through to arsenalpassfab at gmail.com. That's arsenalpassfab, one word, at gmail.com. Uh, we'll be back next week, next week with more Command and Cookout. Um, and Brendan has promised to do you know a nice saucy interview, uh, intro to, to the section next week. <laughs> All right, Brendan. This week we are talking about drafting, as we said at the top of the show. Um, and it's it's... It's a big one for me, I think. Um, limited is such an interesting part of Flesh and Blood. Uh, the I guess the focus really has been on Class Constructed, right? And Blitz Constructed. Like, that's the early life of, of this game, yeah? Like, it's mm-hmm. it's been the focus. Really? But this game is 
purposefully uh, balanced and purposely designed for limited play as well. It's a big focus of what LSS do as a company. Uh, it's been one of the cornerstones of this game since release. You know, when they released Welcome to Wraith, they immediately said this game is also, you know, is heavily designed for limited. It's a big focus for us and, and that hasn't changed through the through the sets releasing. Unfortunately, we had less opportunity to play limited just due to, you know, circumstances. That's very difficult to play that when install play isn't as possible. And um, it just has been, just, I guess, the way that the game has gone, um, the focus has been more so on the constructive formats. But we have, you know, three, what, sorry, two limited callings coming up, right? And then mm-hmm. we also have draft and nationals. Uh, and then no doubt next year, as we move through new sets coming out, we're going to see more and more limited, um, which... Personally, for me, uh, and Brendan, I think you're the same. Is limited is my favorite format. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> it definitely was my favorite format. I, I, I still think it is, but I have definitely found a uh, an affinity for Flesh and Blood Constructed that I didn't have in other games. Yeah. So um, while I still love limited, <laughs> it's got a it's got a competitor these days. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's a. Uh... One of the things about limited right is that it is so fundamentally different to constructed you know cards operate differently cards have different levels of importance they do different things in your deck uh the it's more of like you know you're playing basically micro games when you show up to your event on a saturday you know you don't come with your deck you are building your deck whether it be through sealed or draft you are coming up with your strategies as you go and, and there's archetypes for sure and there's certain cards that are always going to be good but you know a card that doesn't make your deck one week might make your deck the next week and be an all-star, for instance. And that's kind of the cool thing about Flesh and Blood's limited design. So for today on the pod, we're going to be talking about, you know, the, the key one of the key parts of limited, and, and that is being draft, that we're going to see in Nationals. We're going to see it in Skirmish in Season 3 with a select number of stores uh, being allowed to run draft skirmishes, which is really cool. Um, and yeah, we're going to be talking about fundamentals, talking about sort of a mix of examples as well with the new format. Uh, where you know we have been able to draft Tales of Aria, which is is fantastic, um, and then just talk a bit about you know I guess our tips for for drafting and, and how to really get some some success in drafting and um, you know find find a strategy that works for you. Mm-hmm. So, so Brendan, thought we'd uh, thought we'd start. We'll just take it back to basics a little bit. Um, I'm sure most of most of the listeners to Arsenal Pass would have would have done a draft before, but due to opportunity, you know, a lot of people haven't been able to draft yet. And this sort of season will be the first time that they do get to draft. Or maybe they've only just done their first sort of drafts in the past few weeks with the release of Tales. So just wanted to quickly talk about what a draft is. So draft is eight players at a table. Um, each player gets three packs and you're going to be uh, cracking those packs one by one and passing the cards around the table until you end up with 15 cards in front of you from pack one. So you're going to see your pack back a second time. It's going to go around the table twice. Uh, and then you're going to do that two more times for the next two packs. And, you know, one of the cool things in, in designs about the draft format, um, and this is the same for TCG uh, majority, is that you'll also be changing direction. So you'll pass to your left in pack one, but then to your, uh, your right in pack two and back to your left in pack three, which does create a lot of um, really cool things, which we're going to talk about with signaling and uh, drafting your seat uh, later on. In between each of the packs, you're also going to have time to review your drafts. So, you know, after you've picked your first 15 cards, you've made your selection for the first pack before you head into the second pack at the table, you're going to give time to review your first 15 cards. And these this gives you time to work out, you know, where am I so far? What are the class cards that I've taken? What are the generics or element cards that I've taken? And where is my draft going right now? Where are my weaknesses? Where am I lacking? Uh, what are the cards that are, you know, probably going to be good for me? Where are some of the ones that maybe um, I can't play because I've drafted across two classes so far? And then... yeah. Yeah. 
I do have a question for you though, Hayden. Um, so when you play drafts casually at your locals or wherever, do you like do you treat it like a professional event where you'll review only in between, um, or do you kind of review openly? Because I just want to say this because at most events that are not professional events, you're actually allowed to kind of well, I don't know if you're allowed, but everybody <laughs> does it. They review in between, and I've actually recently switched um, to only reviewing after I fully drafted just to kind of, you know, keep myself more practiced for when it actually, you know, it actually matters at a calling or something like that. So you're talking about, Brennan's talking about like picking up the, the cards you've already drafted in between picks. So yeah, say you've, you're take, drafting, yeah, yeah. you've taken your first four cards and then you pick up and check what those first four cards are because you've forgotten or whatever. Um, I think most, most, you know, casual drafts are okay with this. The one thing you got to be careful of, right, is like don't have the pack in your hand while also looking at your picks. Like if there's no packs, you know, either side of you, then you're probably fine to pick up and have a look at your 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 cards. It's always good to to find out from like the TO. Um, usually they'll they'll say like you know it's casual. You can look at your cards. Just make sure there's no other cards around you when you do it. Um, whatever it might be. But pers- personally, I I prefer just to you know uh, not look. Let's just treat it. Yeah, exactly. I want, I'm there to practice draft. Um, so I'm gonna practice like I would. Uh, you know, if it was a a draft at nationals or a calling or wherever it is where. Uh, you don't have the opportunity to review your picks until the end of each pack, um, which is also just good good practice for getting into that mindset of um, you know remembering to some degree you know what cards you're taking, what is the the path your draft has taken so far, uh, because it's really you know if you could review each pick as you take it and continue looking at that, it's going to be a lot easier. And if anyone's ever played online draft clients for TCGs, mm-hmm. that draft experience is so much so much different to a, a real life draft experience where you can't be doing that. 100 um yeah i mean that's kind of the it, that's the basics of draft right um i'm sure most people have drafted but did just want to recap in case any of uh any of the listeners out there haven't haven't had the opportunity to draft yet why don't we start Brandon, by just talking about some of like the core fundamentals right some of the things that are really important for draft things that you should always remember um and actually just practice and try and hone your craft on these sort of fundamentals if you um if you aren't already and first one i know you know this is a uh, one that you always you know, point point the finger at me on, um, but it is important no matter no matter who who you are, and that's uh, ratios, right? So considering your ratios is really important. Um, it, you know, right, Brendan, you can't get to the end of the draft and work out I only have four or five blues. It's not going to go too well for you, right? Yeah, you definitely can't. Um, the only reason I point at you is <laughs> I just think you're better at it than I am. Um, but there's an interesting concept in drafting too. It's uh, this might be kind of taking the basic concept and taking it to the advanced, but it does seem like you are able to secure you you do want to secure reds earlier in the draft while you do get your your resource base later but that can also lead to an issue where it's like oh i don't have enough blues and if you're playing something you know that requires that like we can take bravo and welcome to wraith or maybe oldheim in this one um that can be pretty devastating is not not being able to have the resource core if you need to um play out your deck yeah, when, when we talk ratios, right, we're, we're not just talking about the amount of blues in your deck. We're also talking about um, how many blues versus how many yellows versus how many reds you need. And like a really cool, you know, like a really good thing that you should do, I think, before you go into any draft. And it's, it's really easy to do, um, no matter the format you're drafting, no matter the set you're drafting. Um, it's just know roughly for each of the heroes, like what ratios you do want. So, you know, if we look at Tales of Aria, obviously current set, um, you know, I'm going to the draft thinking, well, most heroes I want like, you know six to nine blues in my deck somewhere around there but all the time i want more i want you know 12 to 15 blues probably in that deck and you know in some certain 
Lixie or Briar decks, um, I can maybe get away with less, less blues, maybe that like six or seven mark, depending on what my, my deck looks like, um, you know, my cost structure looks like. So that's just like a, we can go into that, but that's like a rough rule of thumb is like I know around that many blues, you know, at, at, um, at eight blues, you know, you're just shy, you you know, about a quarter of your deck, right? Um, or just, yeah. just, yeah. I actually do look for a little bit more blues on Lexi, just so that you can kind of have the ability to, you know, I mean, just it depends what deck you're in, but there is like a very good play pattern where it's like flip the lightning card, like the Heaven's Claws, then load, you know, cost one resource and play the arrow. So I actually tend to be a bit more blue on Lexi than mm-hmm. I do on like Briar. And, but the, the really interesting thing with this format is like, how does deep blue affect your blue ratios? Cause I think if you have deep blue, you're actually able to skimp like quite a bit, like almost two to three. Like if I have a base that I want, like let's say in Briar, I want like seven, you know, maybe I want, you know, sometimes creeping up to 10 blues like i'll I'll go down to like six i don't know if i go down to five but like i'll i'll be happy at like six if i have deep blue because deep blue is just a blue on demand right so when you do have that one turn you kind of don't draw it because your ratios don't allow you to have one in every single hand like i think that deep blues impact on your on your resource basis it's massive Mm. And this is where you see immediate divisions from myself and Brendan on opinion in this format. <laughs> um, I think Deep Blue is like one of the best cards in the format. Um, and we are getting to the weeds a little bit, but uh, I still don't think that you can really skimp too hard on um, on resources at the expense of that, just because of just how you're likely to draw resources over the game um, in your hands. But I think there's kind of, you know, I guess a, a matter of like, in-depth sort of tales varia drafting in itself as opposed to maybe maybe some of the fundamentals so um i do think as well to your point i do think you want more blues and lexi if we're talking about this format i think that's definitely true um briar can get away with using yellows a bit more for resources especially in, in lightning builds um you've got cards that cost zero etc cetera, etc cetera. but i guess the kind of main thing is that you know you head into that draft with a rough idea of where you want to sit um, and which which cards are going to be important to you so that's that's where i guess ratios come from and and then not just blues right so reds um probably want roughly half my deck to be reds that's kind of a starting point uh less probably for for old time for instance uh briar probably you know around that so it's just a kind of a rough starting point and you can work from there but what that what that's going to allow you to do is as you go through the draft allow those ratios to guide you um so you know Early on, definitely better to take high power cards, right? That's going to, you know, because those cards are going to be premiums. So we're talking about, you know, reds and, and other high power cards, maybe some yellow as well. Um, and then as the draft goes on, you know, and then you're starting to look to fill out your your curve, right? Your ratio curve, your resource curve. Um, and that's when you might start to consider uh, blues. But for old time, right? Uh, some blue cards might come at more of a premium than for, say, Briar, right? Which we just talked about. So a blue Glacial Footsteps, for instance, could be like really high priority because it's... Uh, it's a blue, but it's also, and it, you know, it costs three or more, so it's going to trigger your weapon, but it's also a card that late game you can actually utilize as a very strong win condition. So, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely some some aspects to go through in terms of ratios there. Anything on your side, Brennan, outside of, like, blues and ratios? Well, I mean, if we're going to talk about Glacial Footsteps being you know, kind of a solid blue that has a, a high function in the deck, I think, like, Blue Ball Lightning is the epitome of that, where... That is a functional blue to pitch, but it is probably one of the the best ball lightnings you can have, just because the way it, how annoying it is to block, right? Yeah, yeah, and the fact that you can pitch it if needed, you can get it on the second cycle of your deck, all these things. So, yeah, I agree. One thing we haven't talked about from a ratio standpoint, we've talked about our resource ratio, but in this set you have uh, another kind of ratio, which is your your Not fuse exactly. to element ratio, right? Which is, um, I think we're probably gonna 
just keep this pretty surface level for this pod um we could probably do a whole podcast just on your ratios of fuse versus element cards it's a really interesting part of this format um and it's something that's you know very deep depending on which which hero you're in which element you're in and which cards you're actually playing with fuse but the the base kind of level is that whatever in this format whatever entails variety whatever element that you end up sort of primarily drafting because even if you're in here and you are drafting across the two elements you're probably still going to primarily be in one element um, is that you want to work out when to prioritize uh, those element cards and, and the cards that you need so if you're playing half the deck with cards that say fuse on them uh, you're going to need some elements to back that up right and it's going to probably depend on the strength of your your fuse cards but if you say that uh, maybe four to five of my fuse cards are really key then you know how can I reliably fuse these across the game? Uh, you're probably going to want, you know, sort of minimum six to, to eight uh, element cards of, of whatever combination of elements that looks like for your hero. But it is something important to to keep in mind. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how not equal <laughs> fuse cards are. Um, yeah. Like some are significantly better than others and you see them kind of go very quickly at the table. But yeah, staying, I think that, you know, I almost feel like I draft an element before hero, and I think that you know, having the the solid base and whatever element I'm playing, and sometimes it is dual element, I find, um, but just rarely, is is probably the most important part <laughs> of drafting. Because if you end up drafting all class cards, your deck is actually close to unplayable. Or if you draft all element cards, you could have a pretty solid deck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think most are true, yeah. I think definitely true on the first one. And um, I will say that, you know, if I'm aiming for, say, and I want to give a bit of, like, a kind of an easy rule of thumb, but if you're, you're aiming for, like, a quarter to a third of your cards being element cards in your draft, which I think is a pretty pretty reasonable ratio to be on, since we're talking about ratios right now, um, that that shouldn't come at the expense of putting bad cards into your deck um, where possible. Mm-hmm. So putting, you know, bad element cards uh, into your deck just for the sake of fuse, and they do no, no other job in your deck, they're not a resource, they don't defend well, um they don't you know pose a threat those cards are really difficult to justify so uh you know while ratios with resources red yellow blues actually this is to be honest it's the same thing i'm not gonna be putting um reds into my deck just to get to my deck to half red if it's a bad card that's you know not going to do anything for me i'd probably rather just play another resource card or another yellow card or whatever it might be and it's the same for for elements to be honest i'm not going to just shoehorn in cards that are actively going to make my deck worse just to potentially have a slightly higher percentage on on some of my fuse cards Mm-hmm. And there is a, <laughs> there is kind of like a third little thing you have to pay attention to in terms of ratios, but mostly when it comes to Brian, that's not attack versus attack action. Um, obviously, your archetype could somewhat guide this, but uh, definitely something to keep in mind because you will see. I feel like in in Tales of R, you do see the the, the premium non attacks go really quickly, like the red electrifies, the red earth lore surges, the weavers. They team they seem to just get uh, picked up very quickly. Yeah. Yeah agree yeah so if we if we took this kind of back to i guess just like the core fundamental of of ratios when you when you walk into a draft have an idea of the heroes in the set and kind of roughly what ratios you want for those heroes um it's going to help you as you start to move into a into a hero into a class with where you want to be especially as you get into packs two and three pack one i think you can be you can be pretty much just unfocused on it entirely you don't need to worry about it just worry about taking you know good cards and, and powerful cards and starting to form a strategy and we'll talk about that soon but once you get into packs two and three start to think about those ratios and as we go through different formats and flesh and blood different sets there's going to be other ratios to consider as well like brennan just talked about non-attacks versus attack actions in some decks 
um, you know, elements versus, you know, elemental cards in a format like Tales of Aria. So you're going to see this keep going. There will always be ratios outside of your, um, outside of your resources. We even saw some Monarch, right, with uh, like Olivia, with your six attack ratio versus uh, mm-hmm. non-six attack ratio or blood debt. So, yeah, it's not going to, it's not going to end here. The, the design space is going to continue to explore different ratios. It's a, it's a key part of the resource system in this game. And um, yeah, don't expect it to, to stop anytime soon. What are we talking about next, Brennan? Yeah, so it's just how will you win the game. I think that this was a concept that was more prevalent in Monarch. Um, in Tales of Aria, I do find that I will look for synergies more than I'll look for a kind of a specific, you know, set of cards that I'm going to set up to win the game. Whether you know, examples of this in Monarch would be like the V for the Vanguard that I'm going to set up for a big turn, or you know, pitch my deck on Chain to kind of set up for <clears throat> Seeds of Agony into Riftbind, all kinds of stuff like that. In in Tales of Aria, I find myself very much centered around kind of how do I build a synergy that's going to apply consistent pressure so I can keep tempo and that's how I plan to win the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, they're kind of two sides of the same coin, right? Like we're, we're, we're approaching the problem with the same way where it's like, you know, if we're going to be building a deck kind of from scratch here, how does a deck ultimately win? Because most of the time in most higher level games of Russian Blood, you don't really win on accident. So you're going to need these kind of key ideas of like how your cards work together and how they're ultimately going to present you know enough damage throughout the game that you can you can close it out, right? hundred percent. One of the the beauties of or one of the yeah one of the most beautiful things about this game, I guess sounds a bit cliche, but um, is the fact that uh, you can often see like a stronger pool of cards do. You know, sorry, a weaker pool of cards do a lot better into a stronger pool of cards because the deck is more cohesive. There's more synergy there. The cards work better together. The ratios are better, um, and that's that's a big part of Flesh and Blood, right? Is this um, this draft process and this deck building process and sealed is actually it's pretty. You know, it's not straightforward, and there is a lot of a lot of angles to it. There's a lot of skill involved with it, um, and you see that with you know just how do you win the game? So you know, if you are trying to draft just the best cards at your table, and you say you end up in Let's just say, uh, let's say old time, and you just draft the, the best old time cards and some fuse cards. That doesn't mean that you're going to have the best deck or that you're going to guarantee to win your games. Um, you need to work out like what are your actual win conditions, like as you're drafting. So I'm going to use old time as an example. Um, you know, I see a red glacial footsteps early. I'm gonna maybe I pick that up, and that is one of my win conditions. I'm gonna play for a glacial footsteps in my deck, and that's one of the ways I can win the game late. You know, I could potentially defend well early and set up a red glacial and arsenal until I find the fuse card plus the blues to do it. I could also see, you know, uh, multiple just really strong three cost seven attack reds, um, and I take those in my all time deck. And my strategy is really focused around presenting two card hands, so defending with two cards mm-hmm. and then coming back in for seven with with a two card hand with one of these these uh, seven attacks. Um, and that's that that could be one of the ways that i'm planning to win the game is to leak damage over time and defend really efficiently um, and maybe i combine those two maybe i combine those two win conditions so early on i put pressure on with these seven attacks and defend with two cards leak damage get a, a life um, total advantage and then i set up a big dominate attack where I, I take a swing from my opponent to do it so you know there's there is lots of different ways to set up uh, win conditions right and how to win games yeah absolutely cool anything else to say on winning games i think that's the main thing is like no matter what the class is, no matter which uh, hero you end up drafting or which element in this game um, for Tales of Arise specifically, you want to have in your head, like, as I'm going through, what are some of the, the key ways I could be shaping up some some win cons here? Um, you know, Lexi kind of has dominate and built, so it could even be as easy as being like, well, I just need to get to that point where my dominate arrows are really effective with on-hit effects. So 
you know, I'm in an ice tick that can produce a lot of on-hit effects um, because I'm prioritizing ice fuse or whatever it might be. Yeah, I mean, I think that definitely sums it up at a base level. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about, we've kind of talked around this a little bit already, but uh, you know, like I wanted to say, Brennan, you know, drafting a class or hero or element is is really important. You can't just take the best cards, right? Um, you First of all, you need to have a 30-card deck. And so if you're just taking the best cards, say, all of pack one and half of pack two, and you end up spread across four classes, uh, you, you're almost certainly not going to end up with enough playables, especially because the last few picks at your table, you you could very likely end up with cards that you can't play. Um, you know, just the way packs are skewed, if you end up in one of the heroes that has multiple drafters, uh, you could end up, you know, trying to draft uh, Briar, but you end up getting past Ranger cards late, and those cards aren't playable, of course, in your deck. So you need to you need to be conscious of drafting a class, a hero, an element, um, whatever it might be in the given set, rather than just drafting purely the best cards. But I do want to caveat that a little bit. Whereas early on in a draft, I think it's perfectly acceptable to draft the best cards in the pack. I think you could go picks one to five, just drafting the best card in the pack every single time, and then work out where you want to go from there. I don't think that's that's an issue, right? But once you get towards the end of pack one, into pack two, and if you're not coherently drafting, you know, maybe in Tales of Aria, an element or uh, a class, you're going to find yourself in a bit of trouble, right? I agree with that in this set more than the last set, mm-hmm. kind of drafting the, the most powerful card. But you did mention that you could get spread out, <laughs> spread across four heroes. It is actually going to be three in Tales of Aria. One thing I do want to say, Tales, is that this set is where I've seen the most cracked baubles. <laughs> it's just, you, you really, like, this idea of, like, trying to stay as open as possible can just become such a trap, like, so quickly. Uh, because, like, you, you have to have, so you, you can only have 15 unplayable cards, and assume you have three or four pieces of armor, like, ideally four, right? It's only, like, 11 unplayable cards, and, like, that can get really spicy really quick because if you're like okay i'm gonna stay open into ice and like ice and earth and then you end up getting cut out of ice you could have like five ice cards and then you end up getting past like the blue rejuvenates later and like all this crap um so i in this format specifically i really like to kind of spread out across elements and obviously i'll take an amazing class card if i see it but spread out across all three really early and just try to read the draft because 99% 99% of the, oh, I can't really say 99 because it's not a huge sample size, but really people tend to draft the element cl- the element class cards early um, to you know kind of have this idea of staying open. And you, that's where you'll get your early signals. And if you're trying to get class signals super early in like a pack one, you won't. Like you probably, you, I, I don't even know if you'll know what class the person is next into you to like the last few picks of pack one. Um, and even if that, so I've, um, I've actually adjusted my strategy because I was getting owned by doing that, you know, seeing like a bunch of good ice cards, like, yeah, ice is open. Then it gets super cut from me later. And then I ended up with, you know, maybe 30 playable cards. So nowadays I do kind of just pick the best element cards I can. If there is a stellar class card, I'll go ahead and do that. This is for the first, like, you know, five or so picks. Yeah, which I think is like a, a good strategy, right? I do think that if we talk about Tails specifically, drafting class cards can potentially be a little bit of a trap. Um, and that's because the class cards are generally going to have one direction, right? So they'll either be, let's use Briar, they're either going to be Earth or Lightning. So if you take all these really good Briar cards early and then afterwards you go, oh, okay, actually I've got like eight good Briar Fuse cards, but only three Briar Earth Fuse cards. I'm going to go into Lightning. But actually, uh, turns out the person to my left is like heavily drafting lightning, and I'm going to see no good lightning cards in pack three. Uh, you know, lightning element cards to fuse with. That's going to be a big problem. So, getting into these elements as opposed to the class cards early is, you know, can really advantage you. 
Um, it's the same in any other format. You look at Monarch as well. Uh, you can you can do that as well. So rather than committing to a class early on, you can take generics, which we don't have in Tales of Aria, but you could, well, we have element, elemental cards, um, but you could also take uh, shadow or, or light cards, right? And you're still open to two mm-hmm. classes, but you are keeping your options open in terms of what ends up being open. So it feels like, yeah, there's some good shadow cards coming around. Uh, I'll pick up some of these and then work out which class I go into afterwards once I sort of feel what, what one might be open. Mm-hmm. And with, you know, with like Tails, it's it's the same thing. You, you know, to Brennan's point, maybe Brennan takes five ice cards. Um, he starts to see some like good Lexi cards and he thinks like this could be could be a go. And then all of a sudden Lexi kind of dries up and lightning really dries up. Well, Brennan still has his ice cards. He's still open to old time. It's not like he's completely closed off to uh, the elements still allow you to draft into two different classes. So I, I agree. I think you can definitely draft into elements and it, it be it really pay you off. Um, and I think you can, you don't necessarily have to draft across all three, right? Like you could just, it could be across two to sort of hedge going into. Uh, so maybe, definitely. yeah, maybe you draft ice and earth, right? A little bit early on, you take, you know, a couple of good ice cards, a couple of good earth cards. Um, you're really open to old time at that point. But, you know, if the ice dries up and Lexi, you know, isn't a thing, um, you've got some good earth cards, maybe some good lightning comes around, you can pivot into Briar. I do tend to diversify into all three for like the first few. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, first, yeah. Well, it's just because I was finding it was like, okay, let's say I was drafting ice and earth. And then like, you know, I have an earth card. I have like two, three ice cards and then like really good ice cards just start coming. And I end up getting like into that five range of ice cards. Um, but it turns out like it's actually going to drive completely. Oldham is taken and Lexi's also taken by the person next to them. And I just kind of have this like one or two earth cards. And now I have to also get into lightning or kind of fully draft earth, which might also be you know, be cut where I kind of like to spread it out a little bit. I do. I generally, so like my past strategy has always been to stay into the two, but I think nowadays after seeing how low I would get unplayable sometimes, um, I'm probably going to be spreading out across all three and just taking the most powerful card in the pack for the first five to six. Yeah. I think it's perfectly reasonable to, to hit your bets and probably everyone's going to have slightly different strategies, but I think the, you in this set in particular, you can get really punished for committing to class cards early. Cause to Brennan's point, mm-hmm. people aren't going to, yeah, People aren't going to prioritize them highly. They're going to prioritize the elements, and there's some really strong, really strong element cards that you can pick up and do want to pick up um, early. And that's going to be, you know, it's going to be class dependent. Again, I'd recommend going and checking out the Fab TCG articles on each archetype of each hero in this format. Um, there's some really good indications of cards that are that are high priority early, and we we did also talk about some of them in in the set review. Um, but just to like recap, you know, there's like cards like uh, you know Red Autumn's Touch or um, an Electrify, uh, you know, Ball Lightning cards like this that are um element specific but uh you know still powerful cards and keep you open mm-hmm. cool uh what are we going with next i think we should talk about equipment it's uh it's something that's very important yeah. and in this set super yeah. important because in tales of aria there is less equipment than in any other set because the uh, the amulets do take up the uh, equipment slot which is really interesting for draft where you can have uh tables with you know like people with one piece of equipment pretty regularly, uh, people with two pieces of equipment. And it's actually really difficult uh, in the seal format to have four pieces of equipment. When I see people flip out four pieces of equipment and sealed, I'm like, oh, you, you, you know, you're running, you're running hot today. Uh, Cause it's, it's very unlikely just based on the fact you have class specific equipment, you have element specific equipment, and then you have the generics. Um, but you also are probably likely to only open around an average of five equipment in a draft. So, uh, sorry, in a sealed. So uh, it is, it is a bit of a, a bit of the, the grail if you can do that. Um, and in yeah. draft, it's it's similar, right? We're going to see less less equipment at the table, um, and some of the equipment in this format is actually on the surface of it. You go, well, 
doesn't defend. Um, and that's kind of one of the most important things about equipment. You know, you look at Welcome to Wraith, you know, Ironhide, uh, sorry, uh, Iron Rod equipment, Monarch Ironhide equipment. There's equipment that do defend that are important. In this set, though, it's all about the, you know, the activated ability of the equipment, like Deep Blue, like Ragamuffin's hat, like suede, um, the suede hides for the Runeblade. Plume, yeah, I mean, yeah. the equipment is so strong in this set. And it goes so quickly, like, I think most equipment does get first picked. <laughs> I mean, sometimes second picked, but yeah, I mean, it dries up so quickly. I almost never see an equipment after a pack like three or four, unless like, you know, somebody already has the boots and there's like an un- unusual amount of boots in, in the pack that, you know, the pack that's going around, whether it be pack one or pack three or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, things like deep blue, uh, plume, like these kind of, you know, deep blue, obviously being the Cherik and plume being an earth, but earth being open to, you know, both old and prior yeah Yeah, it is extremely high priority and you will not see it late in the draft i think if you are seeing it you are getting armor late that should definitely uh you should be feeling good about your future games because (laughs) you're gonna have an edge for sure if people are passing armor around yeah armor armor can actually also be an indication of open classes as well interestingly like if you table so you you wheel you get a a, say you open a pack and it has a, a suede hides in it and you you get that suede hides all the way back. Probably it's very unlikely that there's, you know, three or four suede hides open at a table. Although I know Brennan's actually referring to a draft where that's happened, but we've both been in. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's very unlikely that in that pack one, there's been multiple suede hides open. And it's a, it's a powerful card. Like it's a card that people are going to prioritize or even, you know, maybe a bit more of a signal would be like Plume. If that comes back after eight, eight picks and is still in the pack, you know, probably there's very, very few uh, people looking to Earth. Um, so especially to your left where they've just had picks you know seven six and five so they've had the later picks and they're not taking a plume um could be a good signal so yeah to just want to you know kind of you know say about equipment equipment is important it is something that you do need to draft obviously it feels a bit weird if you once you when you sort of start to draft because it's not a card that goes into your deck so it's taking up a a spot but equipment are, are really powerful right and you do you do need these and do want them it's better than a spot in your deck. It's exactly. a permanent on the field. <laughs> it's just hard if I could to... draft, if I could draft all permanents on the field, I think I might do that. You know, if they attacked and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, if permanents on the field are extremely strong in flesh and blood. Yeah, it's just hard. To, I think it's kind of counterintuitive when when you start the game a little bit though, because you're thinking about like the best sort of like thirty cards mm-hmm. you can have and how those work together, and you've all of a sudden you're like having to because to get equipment, you're probably going to have to take them pretty highly, right? So I would say like in this format, after picks like four or five, you're probably not seeing any equipment unless it's like a, a class um or element class, like duplicate and, and yeah yeah already yeah like like you said a duplicate one yes. that's already gone around so yeah exactly someone's already got it or whatever it might be um or maybe like ragamuffin's hat might be the generic one you see kind of go the, the latest but even then right if you you are probably having to take something like a, a deep blue for instance over like one of the best class cards uh in order to do it potentially in, in the pack right like you you could have a ball lightning and uh, you might need to be taking the deep blue over it to, to ensure you get a chess piece of equipment uh, because you're not going to, you're not going to see another one uh, come by. Yeah. I think that deep blue might be the, the most, like the biggest snap pick card that has ever existed in this game. It's because it's just like, good. that's just where you want to be like pack one, like where, where else is better than deep blue? It goes into everything. It's fantastic. And everything. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting, and we're getting a little bit into the weeds, but I, I enjoy it. <laughs> the fact that, like, Deep Blue, because we're in a set that doesn't have generics, right? So you have the elemental cards that are the generics, but they're not great, to be honest, and they're also also um, focused on elements. So, you know, like Entwine Earth, Entwine Lightning, yeah. they, they're still focused on elements. 
uh, for the most part. Obviously, if you like rejuvenate. Um, yeah, which, what about my rejuvenate deck? Yeah, huh? you can you can have that, man. It's all yours. Um, <laughs> I'll pass them all the way. Unless um, <laughs> it's a blue and I need some resources or I need another attack action or whatever. But yeah, so you do have that aspect. Whereas in, in other formats, you know, you you have generics. You can you can take those, right? Yeah, <laughs> not an option here. That's I mean, that's the thing. It's like that's uh, that kind of goes back to our our argument of diversity in the early picks is that every pick that you make is pretty much committal um in this draft format there yeah yeah i mean and then yeah deep blue is deep blue is the exception it breaks the rule so i think that you should first pick it every time although i do regret saying that because i wish that people would pass to me pack three or or, you know pick three or pick four it'd be incredible i I can't think off the top of my head but i'm I'm almost certain there's probably cards that i'm going to take over at deep blue because i'm i'm a big fan of um and we've kind of talked about this already in draft but i am a fan of taking powerful cards early and if I don't end up playing them, I don't end up playing them. Like that's, you know, if I have a 50% chance to play like one of the best cards in the, in the format, I'm probably going to take that. Like a, in Monarch Soul Reaping, for example, I would just snap pick that first first pick because I thought it was the, or V for the Vanguard. I thought they were two of the best cards in the format. Um, I would just, you know, even if I only had a 25% chance to play them, uh, I'm going to take them because the 25% chance to play one of the best cards in the format and one of the most sort of like, build, you know, defining cards in my deck, I think is, uh, is, is more than enough for me. It's interesting because like I actually like I would I think that I would take a deep blue over a, a soul reaping or a V because I think that deep blue is the best card in the format. Do you think the deep blue is more powerful? <laughs> yeah, it's I think it's the most powerful card. Like I'm not it depends, but like it really is just like so strong at what it does, um, especially for your deck. Because yeah. like it, it just fixes like I mean we're talking about a tempo heavy format a format that can you know often last four to five turns it's like where else do you want to be than having a permanent on the field that will fix a hand that you know because if you do draw the all red hand like in most games of Tales of Aria, you're done like that's it you're not coming back and it, it's tough especially if you're at a lower life threshold like getting around that ten so that's why I mean I value Deep Blue so 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 highly I think that you know if there was a via the Vanguard equivalent I'd probably first pick Deep Blue over it in this format. <laughs> it's funny i think like just me. i think deep blue like encourages some um some interesting deck building decisions that i think are, are still incorrect like i think that for me i'm not talking about like you know using it to skimp on my deck building <laughs> but i'm i definitely want to reduce the variance of getting a bad i agree on that yeah I, format, yeah I agree and that's the strength of deep blue is to like re- help reduce variance which is is massive anyway we, we digress uh let's talk a bit about um sorting as you go so this is kind of like a pretty easy rule of thumb really and something that just easy to focus on. Um, once you pick up your pack, whether it be you know your first pack, fifteen cards, or it be you know you've already picked five cards from the pack, you're picking up seven cards from your right. Uh, just just do a quick little sort. Like it's really easy to do. Pull the cards to the front that you're most interested in. Uh, this is it helps you evaluate them against each other uh, rather than like flicking through the pack and being like, oh, I like this card at the back and I like this card at the front, and then having to like fan them out and look through them. Just pull the cards that you're interested in to the front, um, and just you know just sort some of them. So like if if Earth is like an element that you're looking at. How many earth cards are in the pack pull them to the front or pull them to the back or whatever you know um do the same with lightning i wouldn't suggest like sorting the entire pack as you go every single time that's going to be very time intensive um and you know you're not going to actually have time to focus on thinking about the cards you want to take but some of the key things so you know if we talk about tales of area sort out the the earth cards if you're interested in those you know if there's if there's only one earth card or no earth cards in the pack uh, that's probably a reasonable signal whereas if you pull out three earth cards you know okay there's three earth cards here like that's pretty reasonable signal or even for class cards right same thing pull up the pull up the class cards maybe the two classes that you're you could be across because you have um drafted earth early for instance so pull out your old time and your briar take a look at those so really easy to do 
um, and just can give you some good information about what's happening around the table, but also um, just help you evaluate the cards uh, that are that are sitting right in front of you. Yep, and then just kind of like uh, slightly slightly off topic. I think it's on topic. So <laughs> when I when I am finished with that pack, I do give it a wee shuffle for yeah, yeah, yeah. to the person sitting on my left. But also every time I receive a pack to my right, I count the cards because I think that twenty plus percent of my drafts somebody has messed up the card not in professional level drafts but at locals or something like that but you should just it's such a good habit to get into because trying to rewind from that crap is really really annoying so i i always count the cards that are passed to me whether you know before i pick up the pack yeah i mean just just a good thing to talk about right now is just be just be sensible in your drafts um one of the worst things you can do is be like piling up packs to the person on your left uh if they haven't taken the pack you know if there's a pack sitting you've already passed a pack and this you're the person to your left still picking from the previous pack there's no point in you picking up drafting another card and passing it and just piling it up uh, especially you know if you're at a, maybe a local event with players who are newer to the game or uh, you know less less competitively minded um just just give them the opportunity to pick their cards don't pile stuff up to their right this is where confusion can happen they can take a the wrong pack you know that's not meant to be picked until you know three packs later because they've got four packs sitting to their right things like that so um you know often commonly referred to as a zone draft but uh, draft, yeah, yeah very very easy to do just if there's if there's if there's not a pack uh, to your left, then pass the pack. And if there is, just just hold that pack and just wait. It's the easiest way to do it and the cleanest way to do it. But also, yeah, count your cards. It's very easy to do. Um, all right, Brendan, should we move through into some just some tips on improving at drafting? Some things that um, can definitely help you, I think, get better at uh, drafting in flesh and blood. Let's go. Send it. Send it. All right. Uh, <laughs> the first one is um, draft your seat. So this is a concept that we're kind of talking about when we talk about improving a draft. And, and draft your seat basically means that there is very likely going to be a, a certain deck or a certain hero or class or set of elements that uh, end up best positioned for the seat you're in. Um, and this is what you should try and draft as much as possible. This is like a concept which basically says, you know, don't force anything. Um, find the, the open class, the open element, and, um, and draft that, draft your seat. So... Just to give an example of what this could look like so let's say we go through the first five uh, cards in a pack and you know we were hedging to brennan's point maybe we've taken two from one element two from another element and one from a third element or maybe even a class card because it's really strong and we want to hedge it now we're starting to get into the point where you can start to to read signals right you can start to feel like what is coming your way um especially as the pack starts to wheel so as we get through the first eight cards that's when we, by the wheel the, the pack's gone around the table and you get to see the packs that you the cards that you opened in pack one um now you can start to make some some connections about what is happening this is when you can start to you know read signals from your right which which classes or which element might be open from your right um, and then that's when you should make the decision in your seat to decide where you should be um and effectively right Brendan, is one of the biggest things is like don't force and try and stay open to a degree that you could move into the uh drafting your seat sort of mentality so if you if I started drafting all Briar cards, and actually this is something I did in my last draft to see how this would go, and it went really poorly and uh, sort of confirmed some thoughts that I had. But I actually hedged, you know, like some really powerful Briar cards early, class cards, and then uh, my draft seat ended up actually being I should have been in like an Ice Lexi deck is what I should have been in because that's the, the class cards and the element cards that I was passed. But I was so committed to this uh, Briar deck because I had no like no hedge picks, I had no lightning cards that could fit into um a elixir deck i had no ice cards that could fit in there i had a bunch of class cards and not many element cards i was like shackled to this uh, this one archetype 
Yeah, I mean that's definitely a cute story, but the reality of it is that you were sitting to the left of uh, old Bre- old B Pat, and I was just pulling Jedi mind tricks on you, forcing you into the uh, the briars. I cut you. Yeah, <laughs> no, a- but I mean it's a good it's a good tip. Like staying open and um, kind of drafting drafting safety is better. I mean, I definitely I know in our first draft um, because the caliber of player like you know, I perceived it to be quite high. I did test out forcing in this. Um, in Tales of Aria, just to see if it was something that was viable and it was uh, definitely the worst <laughs> the worst thing I've done so far. Just because, I mean, what are you forcing, right? Um, you're forcing class cards? It's like, meh. You're probably going to be wanting to pick up the element cards early anyway because there's like a plethora of class cards usually later because almost everybody drafts, <clears throat> excuse me, um, drafts, you know, element to class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say as well, and... It kind of Brennan points on a big uh, big sort of thing there, but sometimes you can have a player to your right who just can't send signals, um, and so you're going to have to be prepared for that. Uh, it does happen, believe me. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, There's levels to the signals. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course there is. No, so I did want to talk about just, you know, what how to draft your seat. So we've talked about, you know, what it is. That way to draft your seat is to stay somewhat open. Um, you can hedge, you can take some good class cards, but have the ability to stay open, especially in Tales of Aria. I think in other sets, you can stay open a lot cleaner with generics um, and take some class cards or take like a shadow card still leaves you, you know, just as open as an element, but um, you can also tie that in with generics. Whereas this, you need to be really careful about the amount of class cards you take because also it turns out some element cards might not be playable in your deck, depending on which hero you end up in. So although they keep you open to a degree, it's only to, uh, you know, a slight degree. So that's one of the ways you can draft your set. I draft your seat, sorry. The next is to, um, you know, to be ready to jump in and abandon. So as soon as you hit that sort of, you know, the, the wheel, those eight cards coming around, you start to get a bit of information. So like, oh, you know, I opened two ice cards in this pack and both ice cards are still in this pack. Like there's no one drafting ice or even even if you opened, you know, one and there's still another ice card in there and it's a strong ice card, you know, like maybe it's a, a yellow ice quake or something. Like that's a, still a good signal that... Um, you know, maybe only one player has sort of started to prioritize ice um, and probably not anyone immediately to your right. That could be a signal to to maybe start jumping in. And drafting your seat means uh, also you, you want to react to some degree, but you also want to be, you don't want to make immediate decisions. So I start to get some information from the wheel. I start to think maybe ice might be open. Um, and then, you know, a couple of Lexi cards start to come. Uh, you know, strong, like red arrows late. Okay, uh, I'm going to take a couple of these. I'm still... You know, I'm still open to some degree. If I get to pack, you know, this, you know, the end of pack one, maybe it's like picks eleven and twelve, and it turns out like the Lexi cards that I saw on the first cycle round are no longer in the deck, are no longer in the pack. So, um, you know, the the, the cards I saw picks uh, two, three, and four on the wheel, those Lexi cards are no longer in there. Then actually, maybe Lexi isn't as open as I thought it was going to be. Someone to my right has moved into it instead of me. Um, if I'm drafting my seat, I can still pivot back out of that uh, that Lexi deck that I was thinking I needed to draft. Ice might still be really open, um, but it might be that you end up in an all-time deck, right? So drafting your seat means also being able to just react through that first pack and and find out uh, where you should be. Yeah, and we touched on this earlier as well, but drafting power cards early is an effective strategy, but coupled with that is being ready to abandon them. Um, So... Like, you know, if you're drafting your seat, even if you do pick up, you know, extremely strong cards, like let's say you do pick up an early plume or something like that, but then you see the earth is drawn up, just don't be afraid to kind of jump out of that. And then, you know, if you're going into the open class or the open element, you're going to have a better deck anyway, most of the time. Yeah, you're going to get rewarded for it, which is the the biggest thing. Like there's this, 
you know, you get really attached to your earlier picks because they're like the best cards in the pack. You had the whole pack to pick from and you chose Plume because it's one of the best cards where you chose, um, you know, Red Bull Lightning because it's one of the strongest cards in the pack. But you know what? Like you abandoning that pack and, and you know, drafting your seat, abandoning your power cards, um, you're actually, if, you're, if you've done it correctly and you've, you've found that soft spot in the draft, you're going to get paid, you know, double, triple time back in packs two and three because you've, um, you've found the spot that you need to be in. Mm-hmm. Uh, reflect on your draft, right? This is something that, you know, you can definitely do as you go along. So, um, when you're drafting, there's going to be points in the pack or in any of the packs where you go, oh, this is a tough pick. Um, you know, if we're talking about drafting your seat again, maybe there's a point where you could be pivoting and maybe you decide not to pivot. So maybe uh, I take the extra Briar card and I pass the ice card. I decide that actually it still feels like Briar's open. I've, you know, it feels like maybe I should have pivoted here. Not sure. I'm going to stick to my guns. You can go back on the draft afterwards and just think about that. Like, well, how, what ended up happening? Well, actually, I should have been a nice, you know, I should have been here. I ended up just really sticking to my guns with these Briar cards. And uh, they ended up being four Briar drafters at the table, but they had prioritized elements early. And I, that's why I got a lot of good Briar cards. And I just got so cut from elements. My deck just ended up being so poor. Um, this is a specific experience, actually, that, that happened to me, right? So um, you can you can reflect on your draft afterwards and go like, what? where were the points that went wrong? Where were the points that went well? Maybe in that exact same situation, you actually pivot. You decide to start taking the red arrows, um, even though you have no Lexi cards so far, because it feels like that's the seat you're meant to be in and that's what you're being fed from your right. And then, you know, you end up with a great ice Lexi deck in the end, um, and you can reflect on that point as the point where you made that decision. Um, there's, there's lots of things like that you can do during the draft. There's other picks you, you could go back on. Uh, pack one, pick one. I took a, a plume over a, um, a strong class card. You know, things like this. You can go back and sort of reflect on them. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, Hayden, let's go. Let's go to close this one out and let's talk about some advanced concepts here. Yeah. Um, so we, I kind of just because we've already talked about this, we talked about reading signals, right? But I did just want to kind of detail a little bit more about like what reading and sending signals kind of means in the context of a, a flesh and blood draft. Um, and that is basically like just you know signaling, right? So like you would use a turn a signal at a at an intersection, although some people you know prefer not to use those and just uh, <laughs> assume you have telepathy. Um, you know, if you're passing to your left and you early on in the pack are passing really strong earth cards because you've taken some some good ice, maybe a, a good ranger card, uh, maybe a really solid piece of equipment, you've taken deep blue, uh, you are you are sending a signal to some degree. Um, you are saying to the person on your left that, you know, you haven't taken these earth cards. Whether you're saying that earth is open or not, that's neither here nor there. You have passed, you know, really strong earth cards to your left. So they're probably, you know, if, if they're some of the best cards in the pack, they're probably going to take them, right? So um, you very likely could be signaling and putting someone on your left into Earth. So that's just something that you need to consider for pack two, because in pack two, uh, the Earth cards probably aren't going to come your way if you end up deciding in pack one, actually, I do want to be in a hero that wants, wants Earth, or I do want Earth cards. Um, so there is some signal, but more than sending signals, and that, you know, that is sending signals, reading signals is, is much more important, right, Brennan? Yep, 100%. So, hey, talk to me about this. I'm a new I'm a new drafter, right? Tell me what the wheel is. Like, okay, I, let's say I understand what you're saying. You say wheel the card, you see the pack that you saw originally, see what's mm-hmm. in there. What if I can't remember that? Like, what if that's just too much for me? I mean, I'm focused on trying to build a deck. I'm not even looking at it. I'm thinking about my ratios, thinking about my class, thinking about so many other things. How? What do I need? Like, is there any kind of shortcut you can give me so when that, when that pack does come back around, like, what am I – what's going to – 
gonna set you up oh you bet yeah you yeah, exactly, uh exactly <laughs> pretty much yeah so like how do i do that the easy way do you have any tips to be able to identify the packs that you've seen before and then look you know see things that should jump out at you right like there is a like yeah. the plume the plume is still in there or something crazy you know the card we've referenced a million times this podcast yeah, you you don't need to have photographic memory you don't remember exactly which cards were in that pack but okay there's a couple of things you can do right the first is when the pack wheels around so it comes around the table it's gone through eight uh, seven other players and it's come back to you uh, whether it be the first pack you saw or the fourth pack you saw the first thing that you can do is just be like what are the strongest cards in this pack and you know if there's to your point there's a plume or there's uh multiple strong class cards in the pack that's kind of your first tip off right the next stage of that is if you had a little bit of ability because you've done a lot of drafts you've been practicing this format some things are a bit more sort of um you know come naturally to you maybe when you opened your first three packs you just made a mental note of some of like the really key cards in there like oh actually there's like three really good briar cards in here i wonder if i might be able to wheel one of these back around the table and get it back and then you do you get one of them back um and you kind of remember like you don't need to be like oh it was a yellow veil of flash it was a red whatever but if you remember there was three strong briar cards in that first pack and you get back to your your ninth pick so you see your pack again and there's still you know one or two of those strong briar cards that could be a signal right that could be a you know something that's being told to you at the table um potentially i think to our earlier point this is more prevalent in elements because people are going to try and draft elements and tales of our earlier um but you know you can still take you can still take some notes from this so those are kind of easy ways to do it you know if you can remember exactly what those cards are then you know good on you i think it's really difficult to do um i personally am more just someone who remembers like kind of the idea of the cards the classes the the elements as they go around um but you know the, the more information you have at your disposal if you're able to do it the the better so i know this will come as a shock to our audience but um I want to talk about drafting archetypes. And there was an archetype back in Welcome to Wraith actually called Yellow Bella. <laughs> uh, I know, it's just a meme because I said it so many times. But let's talk about drafting archetypes and what that means. Obviously, Jason Chung, um, he just put up an article. And in that article, you can see Pinger's Briar, right? <laughs> Which is funny that that was detailed in the articles because I actually think that was already the most contested archetype yeah. in draft was, was that exact archetype. Um, but you know, other examples of this are Prism Shields, um, like Levy Recursion with like the How, Go See Visit, Unworldly, all that good stuff. So... It's hard to tell you to draft an archetype because those they're just incredibly elusive in flesh and blood. And once you find them, you can, that's kind of, in my mind, that's how you crack the format, right? Um, so I don't have a lot on hand. Um, I definitely did try one in our last draft. I tried drafting a lot of Earth cards and I had like quite a few Entwined Earths. Yeah, so I took Entwined Earths with the kind of idea of the deck being to arsenal a um, a pump card, whether that's Weaver through Earth War Surge, then have another pump card and Entwine Earth, and then a resource card, block with one card on my turn, and then come in with Entwine Earth, fuse it with the card in my hand, and maybe if I could have that arsenal play the pump before it, and every turn would be 8 plus damage, 8 to 13 damage, while I'm kind of effectively blocking with one card, maybe two if I had to. Um, so that was definitely an archetype I tried to find, and I think there's a lot kind of on the horizon, especially in this set. It's such a synergy-based set. But yeah. before I get too ahead of myself, Hayden, tell me what an archetype is. <laughs> yeah, Brendan, very passionate about the archetypes. And I think, to your point, there's going to be a ton in, in Tales of Aria because of, uh, yeah, like the synergistic nature of the set, right, and how elements and fused cards interact. But effectively, we've been talking about archetypes, uh, the whole pod archetypes are just, they are um, certain uh, decks or types of decks within the draft that uh, look very similar to one another um, that you might you can probably repeatedly draft with uh, you know a few rules of thumb of the cards they're going to be you know like a set of key cards that interact with one another so uh, a good example um, is like the uh, levy of recursion deck from monarch 
So some of the, it was an archetype that really focused around a game plan of recurring threats from your banish zone, thanks to banishing cards from your graveyard uh, into your banish zone, playing cards like Howl from Beyond, um, or even like Ghostly Visit uh, out of your banish zone repeatedly, uh, repeatedly, sorry, uh, with, you know, like one or two card hands. And that effectively meant that, you know, okay, well, here's an archetype. This is the way that this deck wants to play out. And uh, I know that because I want to try and draft this archetype or it feels like this archetype is open, there's key cards I know I need. So uh, certain cards become much higher priority in order to draft that, that archetype. Um, and, you know, uh, if you go and look at the the article that Brennan's referencing there, the, the Jason Chung Briar one on Fab TCG, Jason talks about this. Some of the cards that are really important to Briar that you want to prioritize early if you want to draft a certain archetype of Briar um, rather than just draft Briar. Um, and archetypes are really kind of the move on step in drafting. Once you get into thinking about archetypes and being conscious of trying to draft these strategies, uh, you can be a lot more cohesive in your drafting. Cards become, you know, rather than just, oh, the best card in the pack, or it's an earth card, or it's, an, it's a class card, you're thinking about, well, this card contributes to the archetype I'm, I'm trying to draft. This card doesn't. So this card has a lot higher standing in the sort of draft order for me currently. Um, and that's when you get into like pick orders, right? Um, which is like, you know, which cards are, are better than others, which cards have higher grades, which cards uh, are better in certain decks. Um, so that's that's kind of where archetypes comes in. And it's definitely a very advanced concept of drafting, but it's um, one that once you start to get to it is, is really fun and enjoyable, but is also probably going to really elevate your, your draft game. Yeah, 100%. Cool. I think we're kind of closing it out, really. I think that's that's our kind of base intro in some ways to draft. Um, draft is such a deep part of, of flesh and blood. Um, there's so many things we could talk about. We did, you know, we, we got into some some Tales of Aria specific things. And, and to be honest, we could probably just talk about Tales of Aria draft for hours on end. But we did want to give a bit of an overview of, of drafting. Obviously, we're coming into the skirmish season three. We're coming into Nationals draft. Um, there's some some really key fundamentals that we've shared here as well as some ways to to we think get better at drafts some some sort of tips and things to keep in mind um, to make sure that when you get to that eight man table um, that eight person draft table that you can uh, you can really crush it and uh, find um, find your find your seat as it were might be one of the things that you try and do awesome well as we close out i do want to mention that we do have a youtube channel i know that's surprising <laughs> yeah we've obviously had a huge focus on youtube we mentioned we hit 2000 subscribers which is amazing um so on youtube we do do all kinds of stuff um other than this pod right we have the supplemental pod which is time of the round which we've recently switched the format to it's very you know every single week we'll be having a guest on our next week's guest is actually carol um carol ruskowitz i think that's how you say his last name from legendary studios and the infamous boot player out of new zealand so super excited to have him on so you know, in addition to time of the round, we also do deck techs, we do gameplay, um, all kinds of stuff. So go check it out. That's Arsenal Pass on YouTube. And also, you know, like I always say, the boomers have welcomed Wraith have found their ways on Twitter. So I am located at the Fitty Shades. I'm probably gonna be switching that soon. I think it's a little hard to remember. And Hayden is at Fiendale, so F-Y-E-N underscore Dale, like his last name. And in closing, of course, big thank you to the Patreons closing in at 200. The support is amazing, absolutely allows us to do what we do, and we're going to be pushing it so much further in the future because you know of all the success we've seen and all the support we've gotten, and just can't say thank you enough. Like we said, if you're interested in the Patreon, lots of exclusive content, you know, all the all the sideboard guides, deck stuff, everything you need to. If we put up a deck tech, take that deck, go be competitive, and go start winning with it, and then plenty of more content on the podcast side whether that's the additional podcast every month or the additional live session on top of that every month where you can participate live with us ask questions you know see us on camera all that good stuff but anyway we hope you enjoy this episode we'll see you next week see you later guys